Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. My name is Aaron Maurer, and this is a podcast dedicated to pushing the boundaries of this thing that we call life with intentional focus on balance, education, technology, and other concepts I believe will help us find some pathways as we push our comfort zones to the edges out in the brink of chaos. And my goal with this podcast and all future episodes is to bring to light ideas, questions, people, and books that are going to spark new ideas for positive change and growth within ourselves. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like caffeine for the boring. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Hello, everyone. How you doing? This is Aaron Maurer with another edition of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am incredibly honored to have this next guest on the show. Um, this was a guest that was suggested to me from a previous guest who was phenomenal, Michelle Zimmerman, as we broke down her book, uh, Teaching AI and the Conversation of Artificial Intelligence, and, and really a lot of the conversations that, that came from that. And I think um, that conversation with her has really opened a lot of people's eyes thinking about artificial intelligence and what it means in the world of education. And so uh, this guest that we're going to bring on today is someone who who I would consider an expert in, in these fields. And so um, I'm so excited to have, have uh, Richard on the show here. And so Richard, why don't we dive into it and have you introduce yourself um, and kind of paint the picture of what it is you do because your job role and all the, you've, you've done a ton, um, you know, for, for many educated listen to the show, this is a lot of new territory for them. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, I really appreciate Michelle uh, connecting uh, us uh, together. Um, uh, I'm certainly a big fan of, of hers as well. So yeah, my, uh, I've got sort of an unusual background. My, um, I, anytime we talk about education, I like to mention from the outset that I've been involved in technology for about 30 years now, but I'm a liberal arts guy. So I got a you know, a history and uh, uh, English degree from University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and uh, always thought I would become a lawyer. Uh, but thankfully, I ran into some tech, early technology uh, advocates in the in the late 80s, early 90s that uh, colored my the sky in my world a lot brighter. I, I'm very thankful for that connection because uh, uh, th th that's what I've been playing with for the last 30 years. So I I've been, as I said, very fortunate to work with the same groups of, uh, same group of people in that entire time. Uh, you can consider me, I guess, a ser serial, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, today I call myself a parallel entrepreneur. That's a word <laughs> or a term because I'm involved in a lot of different enterprises, but, uh, certainly, you know, uh, education has been a passion and a great interest uh, uh, simply because I think it's one of the most important things to get right in this accelerating, changing information age. Um, the, the origins of me and my team is actually in computer gaming. Again, a little bit unusual. Uh, we we uh, uh, built a number of game franchises that some of your listeners may know of, like Red Storm Entertainment with author Tom Clancy. Uh, uh, we did game companies with Michael Crichton, the guy who did Jurassic Park at ER. The younger your audience is, the more I'm finding I have to actually explain who these people are. <laughs> Jurassic Park usually triggers people. Yeah. Uh, uh, even people like uh, we did a game with Ozzy Osbourne. We did one with science fiction writer Douglas Adams. 
Uh, and, you know, artificial intelligence, just to tie that thread back in, was always part of that effort. You couldn't make, you know, convincing game environments with convincing characters without having some level of mastery of that technology. But that is that period in the 90s is what I would call the old artificial intelligence. Mm. And the field we're in now is machine learning, and there's all sorts of exciting things happening. But I'll, uh, just to finish my introduction, um, you know, right at the turn of the century, I like to say, because the first company I was involved in was before there was an internet, which usually raises <laughs> eyebrows. Uh, but uh, at the turn of the century, after we'd sold some of these game companies and, and started sort of looking around to think uh, about what else can we do that maybe it's a little more meaningful than just entertainment. Uh, because in the 90s, we were also doing a lot of stuff in the film industry with people like uh, James, the director James Cameron and Brian De Palma and others, you know, doing some 3D graphics sorts of uh, uh, things from our game uh, game capabilities. But after 2000, we started thinking about how powerful this medium was of gaming, the fact that I could build a virtual world and I could put people inside of it and I have this like godlike control over it mm. and I can create any kind of experience I want. I can... I can uh, defy the laws of physics. I can defy the, uh, the uh, uh, sort of control of time. You know, I can take people into the past, into the future, inside the human body, to the, to the surface of Mars. And obviously there's some tremendous opportunities there for education. So we started building these sort of virtual field trip things. And, and uh, early on there, I had a company called 3D Solve, S-O-L-V-E, that, that did the early efforts in what's today called serious games. Mm. You know, not just taking an existing game and trying to adapt it for education, but per doing a purpose-built game uh, platform and game environments that were designed to shorten the path to mastery for how to learn algebra or uh, physics or computer programming or how to, you know, how to do surgery or how to operate a McDonald's restaurant, a whole long uh, list of things. But uh, Lockheed Martin, the big uh, aerospace company, bought my company in 2007, and I had a lot of fun there. And that's, I think, around the time I met Michelle Zimmerman, uh, where we were, I ran this group called Virtual World Labs, mm -hmm. where we played around with all these tools of you know, VR, AR, artificial intelligence, and it's there that I discovered uh, machine learning and realized that a new sort of age was dawning in, in the field of technology and started really with my team thinking about, like, what is that going to mean for education? Right. And that's why I formed this company today called Tanjo. I'm one of uh, Dave and I co-founded this. And uh, we're trying to uh, tilt at windmills in this space. Yeah. And, and as, as you're talking... Like when, so when, when you're working through the video games and now you're working through these virtual worlds and you're trying to cross over into the education, one of the things that I, that I find really fascinating um, that I think is maybe a misconception for some people, and, and maybe even I'm wrong and, and you can correct me, is, is it's, it's more than just coding. So I think like when, when, I know when, I, when I work with students or I work with schools and we're talking about computer science or STEM in these fields, like we are now entering a, a era, it's, it's been around for a while, where when we create these environments, it's not just you have to know how to, how to code, but you have to understand the human condition. You have to understand empathy. You have to understand, um, and, you know, cultures. I mean, all these things. And so I guess maybe one of my first questions as you were talking through that is, 
as you design these experiences and you design these these these, these technology opportunities for people, how do you guys go about designing that? Because I think one of the things that's really important, especially for like students and teachers to realize is like there's lots of needs and lots of skills and abilities and any for any of this stuff to be successful and impactful. Yeah, I, I think you're right in that um, in general, complexity is only going in one direction. Things aren't getting more simple, but the, the, these technologies we're wielding are, are absolutely getting more powerful. Um, you know, and, and, and I would say today, building, you know, virtual worlds or even when we're looking at things like AI and machine learning, we're very quickly getting past this, this point where, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just about the technical skills of it. It really is at a higher level. Um, as we've advanced with technologies, you know, technology advances to the, to the extent we can do things without thinking about them. It's, it's kind of, uh, I'm paraphrasing a quote about this, but the power of technology and, and society's advance based, based on the, the number of activities and tasks they can do without necessarily thinking about them. Um, and, and, and when we're building, whether it's building computer games today or designing like we are today, we're trying to tie 58 community colleges in North Carolina all together with one sort of ma massive machine learning brain mm -hmm. that comprehends and maps and understands all the organizational knowledge of all 10,000 faculty members across all 58 schools ever, you know, ever collected. Wow. Uh, uh, all of those kinds of efforts, there are more of, you know, when I was at Lockheed, I, I, I became what's called a systems architect. And that's really the framework, I think, for all of these applications going forward. It is the people that have sort of a cross-discipline kind of background. And that's why I think a lot of those majors, even in universities today, are really, really popular. Because it's about integrating a lot of technologies, like you say, a lot of the softer skills, like the cognitive sciences, psychology, sociology, into something that has meaning and impact um, rather than just focus on like, how does, how do I get this widget to work? Um, you know, back in the, uh, back in the, um, you know, nineties when, when people would come to me and said, Oh, it's so cool that you're in gaming. My, my children want to get into gaming. Uh, what should they do? And back then I might've said, Oh, you know, if they, if they're inclined towards art, learn these 3d art programs, like, like Autodesk or the Cinema 4d. I'm wearing the yeah. today. Those kinds of tools. And, or I might say, learn to program if they have that sort of bent. Um, today, I, again, I point people to like, you know, read a lot, tell stories, um, uh, really go into that cross-discipline intersection of all the different technologies and 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 uh, and capabilities. Like study history, which is what I did, uh, which to me is the study of everything, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 get that ability. And this is what I tell I do with my kids. I say. It's that Alvin Toffler idea of, you know, learn, unlearn, and relearn. The, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, that's a critical thing in this century is, is, you know, the illiterate people are not just those who can't read and write, but people who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn and retrain themselves fast enough to adapt. And so that ability to learn quickly and work with teams and be creative and integrate technologies without getting you know, overly concerned about the depth of them is, is that systems architect role, uh, role, I think is critical going forward. Yeah. And I'm, how do you uh, teach that? I don't know. Right. Well, but, but, but it's interesting because as you're sitting there and, and you're talking through that in my head, I'm going, I'm just screaming out the words. Yes. Because so much of what I see, like in, where I live in the state of Iowa, we just passed computer science standards. And so a lot of school districts now are trying to figure out 
what is computer science? What does it mean? And how in the world do we implement it into a school day that's already jam-packed? And my fear, the big thing that I'm trying to work with, with with these schools is it can't be one more chunk of time where kids go onto a tablet or a device or a computer lab for 20 minutes one day a week and do some code and go, that's computer science. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and everything you just said, you know, supports this idea. Like it has to be this integrated approach. Like I keep trying to work with like social teachers at like secondary levels, like Where's the conversation on AI? Where's the conversation on this machine learning in the context of the world? Like you can do some really phenomenal conversations and and deep dives into the world today, but also looking through it through a computer science lens. Because like you can just pay attention to the news and and there is this this type of technology and thinking and algorithm design that's impacting decisions every single day, whether we're talking a political landscape or just the world in general. And I think it's, it's, it's such a mind warp for so many people to kind of think, think that way through that lens. Yeah. I mean, it really is interesting to see how it's advancing and accelerating, you know, for context, because again, I have that historic historian sort of view of things. I always talk about the fact, you know, we just look at the nature of work. Um, I like to point out that, you know, in 1800, 91% of everybody in the United States was involved in agriculture. Mm. Then the Industrial Revolution happened and it start, we started slowly adapting and finding other things for people to do. So that by 1900, it was like 40% of everybody in the U.S. was involved in agriculture. Today, it's 2%, mm. right? Yep. So we had 200 years to adapt to this, you know, the, and, and that was the, the Industrial Revolution is about replacing human effort with machine effort, right? Mechanical effort in most cases. Now what we're in is this period where we're replacing cognitive capabilities, human decision-making and human analysis, um, a lot of those kinds of tasks with machines. Uh, and that's happening a lot faster. So being able to adapt to that is, is a critical skill. So, you know, but it's one of the reasons why with, with my children, and I'm often you know, some people are critical of how I spoke at a South by Southwest with Michelle, actually, um, two years ago. And I was talking about what I've done with my kids is essentially I've experimented on them, right? Like yeah. I, I put them in Montessori. We've had tutors. We've had, you know, what is I'm always looking at what are we really trying to do here? What kind of people are we trying to make? Yeah. You know, it's that kind of first principles thing. What's the purpose of education? It's not just about what, you know, making sure that someone can get a job. It's what kind of person am I trying to make? Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so thinking at it, thinking about it from that point of view really, uh, creates some interesting, um, you know, interesting, uh, evaluations of how we do education today. And I started, I certainly started having my kids code, uh, or get exposing them to like logic games and stuff as early as four and five years old, like the Mac program, I think it was called MAC. And then some of those programs, and then afterwards, learning things like Scratch, you know, I met Mitch Resnick out of MIT and I knew Alan Kay, the guy who did um, uh, a small talk years oh. ago in object-oriented programming, invented the first laptop and all that stuff. But from that, from them, I gathered those ideas about, you know, as early as possible, I want my kids to learn coding. And it's not because I expect either one of my children, I have a boy and a girl, uh, to become coders, but I need them to understand how machines think and how they work and to grow up with that in a fluent sort of comfortable way because I do believe, and this is another one of my thesis statements around this company today and everything I'm doing is that today the critical thing for every organization, every 
education institution, every government, and even every individual is to look at all your activities and figure out what should I be continuing to do with the state of technology today? What should I do with my human effort and human attention, those two things? And what should I begin to outsource or turn over to automated systems, machine systems, who are just going to be much, much better than us at certain things. Anybody who gets that balance, and that's what it is, it's a balance, right, is going to prosper and be competitive and be a fully you know, enriched person or organization. Those who don't, I believe very soon, will not only not be competitive, but may be irrelevant. Yeah, so, and I know- It's a difficult thing, but- and I'm glad you brought up that balance piece. I know I'll put a link in the show notes to the article in which you you, you wrote about that. Um, and I think that that's an important piece. And maybe there's another one of those kind of misconceptions, whether you're in education or a parent listening or just someone that's interested in, in, in AI, machine learning in general is like, so what have you found? I mean, if that, that's your thesis and not that there is a, a silver lining answer to all this, but I think one of the fears um, you know, you see all the stuff in the headlines because everybody wants the quick little sound bite to make you check, you know, that automation is going to, you know, eliminate all jobs. And we know, I mean, if you dive into anything, every new opportunity leads into new jobs and new opportunity. Like they're not going to be also and everybody's going to be unemployed. Um, but I think it comes back to what you said, that idea of balance. And it, it's it's a structure that made a lot of sense to me when, when I read that piece on it, like, that that's exactly it. Like I always think it got me thinking myself, like what am I wasting my time doing that I haven't, you know, written a little bit of like a Python script that should automatically be doing that. Why, you know, and I'm thinking about some of the stuff I do in the morning that I waste 30, 40 minutes on through manual labor over coffee that mm -hmm. it should just be available as soon as I wake up, you know, those types of things. And so what have you found or, or examples or, or maybe just some things, because I think that's something that, that, is important. Like we can't be scared of it, but we just need to understand like life could be more, we could be more efficient by handing some things off to give us more time to do, you know, the amazing things that the human actually can do that, that, that machines can't always do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really starts with just a lens. It's a practice, right? It's an awareness thing of, of, and we've even talked about, there's a colleague of mine named Kevin Clark, who was a, a high level marketing executive at IBM. Uh, he was the brand manager for the ThinkPad and has written a bunch of books and things. But we talked about the fact that we think, it, especially companies today, need a new um, organization or a new, at least a new person. Let's call it chief resource officer. I think that's what he called it, who uh, is doing that task of looking at, looking at the state of the art of technology and seeing how it's advancing and deciding, you know, next quarter we might want to consider beginning to, you know, we, we have a whole bunch of people that are performing this sort of task. Let's turn that over let's start automating elements of that and let's take those people, move them on to higher order sorts of tasks. And I, and I think that is what's happening um, for all the fears. And I think there are valid fears about replacement of certain jobs. That is going to happen. We are going to displace jobs. There's things humans are doing today or we're doing last month or a year ago that they won't do anymore. Right. That we right. are going to get more comfortable with like, man, the only way to do that is with humans. I mean, I'm sorry, it's with machine intelligence of some kind that's been purpose built around that task, whether it's reading x-rays, radiology sorts of things. We already know machines are better than that. Yeah. Diagnosing illness, um, driving vehicles very soon. That already exists. Right. We could be eliminating, you know, millions of deaths and injuries every year. Right now, we have the technology to do it. We just need policy. We need, you know, willingness, uh, the, the will to do it. Um, 
but you, you know, having someone who's looking at that, and, and you know, I'd like to tell you that, oh, you can just, for each organization, it's this one pat answer, and that you'll be good for five years. But in fact, it's changing so quickly that it is almost like a quarter by quarter analysis <laughs> that you have to think it through. And I joked, I was with Michelle at a Comic Con in outside of Seattle, we were speaking there. Uh, it's kind of fun to have a whole audience, by the way, of, of, of adults in costume. You know, nothing like putting your, you know, everybody's in play state, everybody's happy. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, we were, um, we were just talking about, uh, uh, I lost the thread there. What were we, we were talking about, um, the quarterly change of, of business and oh, yeah, that flexibility. That yeah. Writing, that I'm writing this book called superhuman. It's kind of based on this idea from Hans Moravec, who, uh, is a is a sort of roboticist and, and and AI person who's been around for a long time. He said, "Look, you know, we don't need to be afraid about machines taking over. It's really going to be humans becoming something new, ourselves in more potent form, is what he calls it. Mm. And I think that's actually what's happening is that we are uh, becoming something new. We have these sort of exocortical extensions of ourselves that that increasingly we're we're beginning to to uh, take advantage of." But like I said, if you think about the inequity in the world, it isn't just going to be economic anymore. It's going to be access and comfort with technologies that give you information at a pace that um, is different from, from other people. So that, that's a critical equal. I, I think that's a yeah, sort of an equal rights kind of human rights issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, as, as we think about the acceleration of, of tech and, and all these things that come with it, you know, it's really just as much bringing together with that, the conversation on, on the ethics and, and human rights and things that come with it. And I think a lot of times we get excited by the tech or maybe we become scared by the tech and the stuff we see and read about, but we're not bringing that along with. And I think this, that's really a, a, a critical piece. I think for me, from the education lens can really start to cement and, and, and strengthen that by having these conversations about ethics and what does it mean to be human and, and what are human rights and, and what is the, the state of the future for you? And I think we're, we're seeing lots of examples of youth starting to put, take matter into their own hands and realizing like it's time for change. Like you as adults aren't quite doing it right. But I think there, there's a, a wonderful entry point for a lot of schools to start to bring and weave that into the fabric of learning. You know, if we really think about what is school for, you know, most people want, they, they want good, productive, positive citizens to, you know, keep earth and humans alive. I mean, no matter what other variables you put in there, like, and, and they're, what, what, what a great opportunity to do that. And, and to that point, I meant to, to mention that, uh, you know, I'm always attracted to any group of people who are thinking that way. Um, and about six or seven years ago, uh, again, we've had this sort of long relationship with James Cameron, the director. He was going through the same thing I was, was like, how do I want to educate my, my own children? And man, I'm not, you know, the places where I'm putting it now, I, I don't think they, you know, that I have as an opportunity for my kids to go now. They're not really thinking through the changes that we see happening. Mm. And so I've got to customize it for myself and personalize it. So what he did, of course, with his resources, he's got more resources <laughs> than me, is he and his wife, Susie, just made a school. Mm. And, they, and they said, hey, would you like to be part of this? So I ended up joining the board of directors of it. It's a school out in Calabasas, California, of all places, right? <laughs> uh, called Muse. But what was amazing about it is, again, it's this first, we were... The charter was like, hey, what kind of people do we want to make? 
you know, and it was about stewardship of the planet and, um, uh, you know, thoughtful, caring people that also have all the skills that they're going to need to survive in this rapidly advancing world. So what does that look like? Um, instead of just like trying to cobble things on top of an existing framework, they started with that first principles idea, a mm. uh, clean sheet of paper, and what do we do? So it ended up being this sort of Reggio Emilio model, but with a lot of project-based integrated work. So there isn't like you don't go to English class and math class and things like that. It's all integrated together in project-based work that, in, and it's personalized for each student too. Like, what mm. are you, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? What gets you excited? Yeah. And, and then let's build a curriculum around you. Now, now that's, you know, when I talked about this again at South by Southwest, there were a lot of, you know, teachers there from other uh, environments who were like, you know, that's not, pr that's great, you know, for if you've got the resources to do it, but not practical for most families. Mm. So, how do you democratize that model? And I think that's what we're struggling with now is how do we do that? But I think the, the answer is some level of technology can help do that. Although technology is not the only answer. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so as, as we think about that in terms of those examples of education, you think about how you want your own children to be educated. We, you know, you're talking about the, the, the constant change evolution of a quarter by quarter basis for a company to be looking at, you know, it comes back to this. We still have this um, antiquated model of, of what we're doing to help kids get ready. I mean, I look at it from, from my own parenting perspective of, I struggle. I, I watch my kids do things in, in schools and in a school system that I was part of. Like, it's not a, it's not a failing school by any means. My kids will be fine. But for, there's this parent lens of going, I know why you're doing this. Like these are the hoops you have to jump through in order to go to college to jump through these same hoops. But then I'm looking at it through my educator lens and I realize that the world is changing and that, that isn't always going to be the future. And I'm always torn because I think for like my son who's in high school, I don't know that that future, this, this new model, how I see the world working is going to be quite ready for where we are in the landscape within his time frame. But my youngest, it very well could be. You know, so I'm always like in this friction of, okay, yes, I understand why we're doing this. But at the same time, like, it's not, that's not what we need, you know. And so I guess to come full circle and, and, and the phrasing of the question for you is, is, like, for your company, where you do have to constantly be evolving your ideas and constantly learning, like, what are you looking for in the employees? Because I think that's the... I think people are shifting, you know, and so how is it or what is it that you're looking for when you bring people on, on board to, to your company or previous companies, um, you know, that, that speak to this, that this world is spinning faster than maybe how the world of education is spinning? Yeah, well, uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting question because I, I still think even as we're building these sorts of systems and we build three kinds of products, one is, again, this sort of uh, machine learning brain that can harvest and care for all the organizational knowledge in a in a school, like for a university, for a community college, or for a, a bunch of colleges all together. Uh, the second is something I think that's commoditizing really quickly that I talked about is this, this idea of process automation. So build a purpose-built thing like for people in accounting, whatever, instead of accountants going in and, and having to read a bunch of uh, documents and go through financial transactions and read it all in the form and assessment, you can automate a lot of that mm. activity. And, and really, it's going to completely change that entire environment. Same thing in the legal environment. So process automation is another piece. Uh, and building these sort of pur purpose-built things for, for small tasks like that is 
is a is still a, a really um, lucrative model, and that takes a certain kind of person, certain kind of mindset. And then the last one is is how do we actually model human behavior? So take the data exhaust off the internet and then mm -hmm. build synthetic populations of people, whether it's the citizens of a city or um, you know, customers of a product or, or students in a school, and then building truly personalized paths that, that benefit those people, not, <laughs> you know, not the other way around. And, you know, we can get into a whole thing about the, the clue train manifesto, which came out <laughs> when the internet was first born about what the internet was supposed to do in terms of democratizing power and access to knowledge, which hasn't happened. Right. Um, but that, that's the kind of thing we want to do. But when we build these things, I'm still looking for, again, like the systems architect sort of mindset, I, I can't just say, well, I need someone who really knows Python or someone who really knows C++ or any of these programming languages. It's someone who can, who's brilliant enough to come in and integrate all that stuff together and then apply it in an environment, in a workflow that, to integrate it with Microsoft products or Linux products or, you know, with learning management systems or that, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very difficult for us to find the people that we need because because I, I, to my, to the point I made earlier, I don't think we're making enough of those kinds of people who are like, well, here's my skill. I've learned this one thing or these two things. It's like, no, you need to be able to adapt and learn and integrate a lot of things very quickly and be completely comfortable in this weird environment. Because, you know, we're creating an environment that didn't exist. Yeah. When I started with this in 2009, when we first started working with machine learning, it was a, you know, it was a new uh, technology even though we've talked about it for a long time, but it, once you, we understood what it could do, it, it again remapped all of our brains to uh, look at problems in a different way. And so I need people that are, have that ability to remap because you get some people, especially people who've had one job their entire life. And even when I was at Lockheed, I found people who had this sort of linear path from the time they graduated from college in 1948 all the way until they put a rover on the Mars. They just they know this one thing and they haven't had a need to know it. They've specialized yeah. and specialists are, I think still good, but adaptability and integrated thinking, integrative thinking is the skill we look for. And it's, it's uh, tough to find. Yeah. And I keep thinking of one of the things that we keep trying to wrap our head around in education with the people I talk to is I think school does a really good job of telling kids the problems that they need to find quote unquote answers to. But where we struggle is this, I think, this shift that kind of speaks to even what you're looking for, employees. Like, we also have to start teaching kids, like, how to ask the right questions to identify the problem that needs to be solved as well. Because, you know, First principles it, thinking, right? yeah, I mean, I just think about even, you know, if, if businesses are going to get to this point where they're going to have to constantly pivot every quarter, it's not just, okay, I'm going to wait for my boss to tell me the problem is I'm going to be within this, this wheelhouse of this, this ecosystem of, of whatever I'm working in to be able to go, there's the problem that we need to work on in order to get this solution that we've been working, you know, like it's, it's all these, you know, it kind of muddies all together. And, you know, I think the challenge is then what in the world does that look like? You know, how do we yeah. create the conditions where kids can start to identify problems that then need to have, you know, I think what Seth Godin calls interesting, uh, interesting problems these ideas that these problems don't actually have an answer or you might come up with a solution and tomorrow it might be replaced by a better solution and i think that there's something really fascinating you know in, in in that mode of thought as well yeah yeah and i think you know i know we we kicked this off by talking about the role of ai in education and machine learning that sort of thing but i, I think in the end that the answer 
that uh, at least where I am now with how we're thinking about things that we're building is you, you definitely want something that is a personalized and adaptive uh, suite of, you know, designs that are designed for people to prosper along whatever path they're, they're, they're following. Um, and machine learning and AI are just one component of that. And I usually like to tell a story. There's this uh, uh, website out there, and, uh, and there's a book by the same name called Getting Smart by Tom, Tom Vanderark, who was, you know, with the Gates Foundation. Yeah. He and I were together in Puerto Rico uh, at a conference not long ago, and I told him about one of the most interesting projects I worked on. I was at Lockheed only for about six years, uh, which was four years longer than I expected to be because I was having fun mm. because I did take them into education and healthcare simulation in those areas. But one of the most interesting projects was this uh, big, huge contract with the United Kingdom. The UK Ministry of Defense gave Lockheed a contract to say, take over the training of all of our air crew members, like all of our fighter pilots, our helicopter pilots, our C-130 pilots, or crew members who are on board one of these that might be manning communication systems or radars or whatever. Um, and And the way it worked was, Lockheed Martin didn't get paid until they produced a qualified candidate. Mm. So think about that alignment of incentives. (laughs) That was a beautiful thing. And I think that's one of the issues that we have to keep thinking about in education and in healthcare and a lot of other areas of our lives is aligning, like, what are you solving for? And is everybody aligned with the reward system of how to get there? Is everybody trying to do the same thing? It's not about seat time. It's not about test scores or anything else. It's like I said, what kind of people we're trying to make. Yeah. So the, 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 the upshot of this though is, you know, this is, I think a good illustration of what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is it wasn't all about technology and we weren't there saying, you know, okay, if I'm going to train someone to be an F-35 pilot, uh, you know, how many of my fine Lockheed Martin simulators can I sell them? It was who has the best simulator on the planet. Mm. If it's Boeing, great. I'm going to buy that one because I'm, I'm looking, I'm really solving for the shortest path to mastery. And whatever I need, whatever collection of things I need to do to get there, that's the incentive. So, and like I said, it wasn't a technology answer. It was for each task, for each thing that we're trying to do, uh, figure out how much uh, time should be spent in the classroom for that, for that task. How much time with interactive multimedia instruction? How much time with self-study? How much time in a simulator? How much time in a real aircraft gives you that shortest path? So Lockheed ended up getting a, a, um, uh, medal from the Queen of England because it ended up compressing the time by a third or more in most cases. Oh, wow. I mean, and that, <laughs> so that showed me, it's like, if we could just align those incentives and, you know, for some of your listener, listeners are really into, you know, learning styles and that kind of thing. And I'm not saying this is true of, all, of everything, but we didn't find learning styles for individuals to be the, the thing to solve for. It was really about the task. Mm-hmm. Now we were also selecting people for those tasks. So maybe that's why, that, that didn't prove out, but it was really about for each task, there was, there was a unique algorithm for how much of the, which kind of media type gets you there faster. And we then, man, we solved it. So I came out of there and I told that story also to Nolan Bushnell, the guy who founded <laughs> Atari, right? And you may have seen him running around going yeah. like, oh, you know, we're going to be able to do high school in a year now. You know, and everybody be graduating high school who compress algebra and, and physics and chemistry and everything into these shorter things. But that's not the point. The point is you can do it faster. And what you decide to do with the rest of that time is up to you. But yeah, but uh, but it, it's clear that if we have that kind of 
alignment of incentives and then looked at it by task, we could really uh, compress the amount of time it takes people to, to learn. That's so that's so fascinating. And I definitely think it's it's something for all of us to just to think on whether we're in the classroom or not, or a parent or grandparent or whatever our roles are, just thinking through, you know, it comes back to, I think what you said earlier, the, the word of, of efficiency, how we, how can we become more efficient with the time that we have? And, you know, I sit there, I think about even when I watch my own children, you know, so I've got a, an eight, uh, 12 and 14 year old, and I just watch how they work in their modalities. And it's, you know, it's a sign maybe I'm getting old because it is different than mine. Like, you know, my son is, you know, he, he, the video, I mean, the video is, was everyone's world, but like he gets things like, and he's diving into things. And then I watch him go and transition into his schoolwork, which is complete opposite of like how he functions. And, you know, and I watch him play video games, but he wants to solve a solution or find a way to do something. The amount of, I call it studying. He just thinks it's just, I'm just going to watch this YouTuber and there's more to it than that. But like the amount of strategy he does to be successful in these team type games, I'm like, dude, that's the work that, that, is going to make you employable or be your own boss in some way. And he just looks at me because he doesn't, they don't see the crossover yet. You know, he's just like, I'm just playing video games. And I I'm like, dude. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> you know, there's a great book out there by um, this woman named Jane McGonigal about that. Idea. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's called reality is broken. Right. And yep. it's amazing when you look at gaming, the gaming world, how much, pe how much unnecessary hard work people are willing to do <laughs> when they're collectively with, uh, you know, teams of people to accomplish really difficult tasks when they are in what we call flow state. So you've heard me say that before, but, and I met, you know, Cheek Sentmahai is, uh, this guy who came up with this theory of flow state, which is this sort of, uh, uh, sort of um, operating uh, spectrum between boredom and anxiety where, you know, that's where Michael Jordan hits all of his three-pointers or whoever you want to choose from, right. Kobe Bryant, whoever you want to think of today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that's one of the uh, things that we talk about a lot with tech, too, is it isn't just about efficiency. It's also about, you know, how do we live better, more fruitful lives, uh, more creative lives? And, and there are, tech, like I said, there are tasks that that are in the work environment today that humans arguably should not be doing. If you've ever been to a chicken factory or not long ago, I, I visited a, a tobacco factory not far from here where people were rolling cigars. Um, and I, and I look at the, the environment there and go like, Oh my God, this is horrible that humans are in mm -hmm. this environment doing these repetitive tasks. Let, let, let's go ahead and automate that and free those people up for something else. Yeah. And, and like, like I said earlier, you know, just like we did with, the industrial revolution and, and we're able to find other things for people to do that is happening also with this cognitive displacement that, that we have today. Like, you know, I mentioned that the only 2% of the people in the U S are, are involved in agriculture today. Um, today there are more app developers than there are farmers in the U S and app developers, a job didn't exist before the iPhone came out. Right. So right. we found a new thing, you know, for people to do and the whole gig economy and, and stuff like that. I mean, we've been we've been talking for a while that we're expecting automation to create double-digit unemployment, while it also creates double-digit uh, Dow returns. Now we're seeing the Dow returns, right, because of the increasing efficiency that companies are getting out of more automation. But we aren't seeing necessarily the double-digit unemployment um, because people are being retrained and 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 uh, and moving into other kinds of realities than 
than we even thought of, you know, when I graduated from high school. Yeah. I know there was in the, uh, the book 21 lessons for the 21st century. Um, there's a, uh, the author has a story in there. Uh, Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, great. and he talks about, um, like the, the unmanned drones and how everybody was fearful when unmanned drones came, it was going to create this huge drop in, 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 or a huge increase in unemployment, but then it created all like 30 brand new jobs. And now one unmanned drone requires like 80, 80 yeah, people exactly. to do the task. Yeah. And it's like, you know, not that everything's going to scale to like, you know, one, one job's going to lead to 80 new jobs, but this idea of like, we don't even know yet. And so while I think it's, it, it's important to be fearful and cautious and things, we can't let it prevent moving forward because we don't know the, the new pathways that, 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 that could emerge, you know? And I just think it's, it's yeah. such a good reminder, you know, as we're all trying to move forward, whether it's our personal lives or professional lives or our students or our own kids, like, we have to continue to push forward because you're going to get That's left right. behind yeah. if you don't. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of different realities that are possible. Not just, I, I was, I usually tell people the joke about my grandmother, you know, when I graduated high school and I, I did go, you know, when I got my degree out of UNC, I planned to go to law school, like I said, and, and she was so proud of that idea. But when I told her, Oh no, you know, I, I worked on a movie set down in South Carolina, this movie called the abyss. And, <laughs> and I'm going to go into computer gaming and, I, and these other areas. She couldn't even understand what that was. And it upset her greatly because when she, in her sort of tribe of people she knew in this small town in North Carolina, she was trying to explain that she knew I was successful, but she couldn't explain what I did. Right. I think my children today can't really explain what I do. Either, but, um, <laughs> But so she would just tell everybody I was a lawyer because that was one of the successful archetypes in her head. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I'd run into people like, why are you telling everyone you're a lawyer? You're not I'm like, I've never said that. Right? <laughs> my grandmother doesn't understand. Um, but that's the thing is like if you just embrace the change and the adaptability and, you know, that's one of the reasons why I asked uh, the, the Democratic governor here in North Carolina appointed me to the board of a very large community college called Wake Tech. 70,000 students, you know, $250 million budget. Wow. Great. You know, for me, I'm, I'm attracted to those sorts of things, like just as I was to James Cameron's school, uh, is this idea of like, hey, here's a place where I can experiment with ideas. And I really do think community colleges are the right kind of structure even though I've got a four-year degree, you know, a bachelor's degree from a college, and I didn't do anything after that, uh, I, I think this idea of retraining quickly for new emerging jobs in a less than two-year format, even, even the idea of micro-credentialing. Yeah. If your audience is familiar with that, of like, oh, I had to go learn this new skill, like I had to learn on or how to do some data science analysis of a, of a certain kind of data set. I'm going to go get a credential on that, and now I've got that capability. And that should be valued out there in the, you know, in the new work environment that I'm going into. That's the right model for how we're moving forward, not go four years and then do another X number of years before you even get into the, you know, get out into the work environment because you're being trained for something that doesn't, won't exist by the time you graduate. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's that adaptability and learning to learn that, that I think is so critical. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, you know, if, if nothing else of people getting out of this conversation, it's just that, you know, coming back to the quote that 
we've probably all seen a million times. Like, you know, our, we have to be able to learn, relearn, and unlearn, you know, in this constant cycle of, of just working through that to be adaptable and, and, and to be ready for, for whatever the, the, the world's going to present to us. And I think, you know, whether you're looking at it through a tech lens or your own kind of personal professional lens, like – we, you just got to constantly be evolving. I think these days of, I think about my own parents where you had a job and that's what you did for your 40, 50 years and you retired and you knew you, everything was mapped out. Like that's just not the norm anymore. Um, you yeah. know, and so it's it's all about really putting the ball in your own court to, to, to do what, what it is that you want to set out to do. And I think that's, you know, um, a, a, an important idea for all of us to think about, not just for ourselves, but what are we doing to help our students you know, be ready for for that kind of future. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been a phenomenal chat. I could listen to you just tell stories all day long, but I'm sure you have other things to be to be doing here. But I'd like to to close out. Is there is there any anything else that you want to share? Anything that we didn't get to? You know, when it comes to the work you do, or or, or things that we we kind of talked on, or maybe didn't talk on, that you want to make sure that the listeners get get a chance to uh, you know hear from you on that on on, on that side of things. No, that's great. I appreciate that uh, open-ended uh, uh, question because I, I think there, you know, we d- certainly didn't cover it all. Right. But, uh, two other, two things I think that are worth thinking about with regard to AI specifically is, you know, this idea of intelligent tutors. Um, we do mm-hmm. have evidence that um, that for if you make purpose-built intelligent tutors, there's this guy named Dexter Fletcher did a lot of that work. And, you know, at Lockheed, I, I help work on some of these things around like teaching someone how to use a sonar or, you know, communications equipment or things like that. We know now that if you build a adaptive AI sort of tutor for, for that's purpose built for some specific task like that, it can outperform, you know, the classroom environment mm. and be similar to the two sigma improvement you would expect a, a good tutor to give you, um, you know, with personalized instruction over um, uh, the, um, over the, I'm sorry, I have another call coming in, but over the, uh, uh, you know, over the classroom environment. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other that I think is a great archetype for those, just in case anyone in your audience has not been exposed to it is, you know, Neil Stevenson in the nineties wrote a book uh, called diamond age mm. where he talked about, yeah. you know, the young ladies illustrated primer and the primer of course is a device. And that's, that was sort of the inspiration for the one laptop per child effort that Negroponte and Alan Kay did and, and others. Um, but, it, but again, it's too much focus on the hardware, not, not enough on the fact that we shouldn't be learning to adapt to all these technologies and how to type and do batch commands and all these things. The stuff needs to start becoming more ambient and adapting to us. Mm-hmm. That's the lesson from the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer. This, the story is that it's this dystopian science fiction future um, there's an orphan who has been disenfranchised because she doesn't have access to, you know, equal access to information and technology that, that the affluent in this future world have. But one of these devices meant for a rich person's child fell into her lap. And so this orphan just takes this thing on and it, again, adapts to her, starts as she's walking down the street, it's telling her stories, it's describing things around her, like that's an oak tree, that's a squirrel. Mm-hmm. Did you know, let me tell you a story about squirrels and how they, whatever it is, right? Uh, and then, but portions of it are also like people that are called vectors, which are specialized teachers. And that I think is the role of the, the teacher going forward is again, anything we can automate like that with, you know, automated access to information and in little bits or games or simulations or storytelling or whatever it is that, that helps someone 
uh, get those ideas embedded in their head so they can build up to the next level of math or physics or whatever, higher right. But then also have access to really inspirational, uh, you know, live human teachers, instructors that, that can inspire you and, and help you think about things in different ways. That's what that model is all about. And so that's the model we really need to be embracing going forward for that shortest path to mastery. Yeah. And I really like that. I mean, it makes, it makes me think of, it could be a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day, but like that whole thing of that inspirational teacher, like to automate what, what we don't need to be necessarily wasting classroom time on. Um, Cause that could be automated through just all the, the examples that you gave, but then the, the, the classroom educator can really start to inspire and, and develop and help with the strengthen of the social emotional needs that the students need. You know, that, that sometimes these other elements don't, we can get you the, the learning and, and these things are going to constantly evolve. But I think as we continue to see a rise in the needs for, you know, for mental health and um, anxiety and all these other things that come through, not that the teacher is a, a therapist per se, but just someone to help them paint the picture and see how it all comes together, um, you know, and just to kind of give them that, that nudge to go forward, like you're doing a great job. And I think, you know, that, that human element is, is something that I think is going to be more and more vital, you know, as we can start to figure out better ways to meet kids in terms of how they learn, you know, we're, we're, we're more and more diverse. We're learning more about ourselves day in and day out. And I think, you know, a t one teacher isn't going to be able to meet the needs of 30 kids every single day, day in and day out, but we can, right. but we can meet their needs in a different way using the use of tech and other, other devices to kind of help strengthen that differentiate personalized pathways. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's about compressing matter, energy, space, and time, but you know, it's a classic opportunity for network technology but then, you know, beyond that, with teachers, it really is about amp sort of amplifying the reach of effective teachers. Yeah. Right. Letting them not just deal with 30 students, but a larger number of them. And then augmented with, you know, uh, simulations, uh, game-based learning, and uh, purpose-built AI tutors around certain things that can help students grasp these concepts. And then the time, it, it's... You know, the early flipping the classroom with Khan Academy was about, oh, watch your videos at night and then come in the classroom to talk about it. I think we're ready for the next step, which is the flip needs to be purpose-built simulation, game-based learning, AI, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, you know, it, it makes that interaction with the uh, teacher and the rest of your classmates a lot more rich in terms of asking questions about the experiences you've had by melding together all of those different media types together. Yeah. That, that's the answer, I think. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of a lot of this computer science class I'm actually taking right now through Harvard. It's free, you know, and you think about, okay, here's here's an opportunity. I can't go to Harvard. It's not close to where I live, and my wife would probably frown upon me just, you know, going back to college and leaving her home with the kids. But, like, I can, t I, I can attend these lectures – and I'm on all these platforms sharing ideas and, and there's there's machines that are checking my, my work and giving me feedback and I have this whole crowdsource and it's like there's a real power in there. Like this guy is quote unquote one of the best professors in computer science. Like so having the opportunity to tap into his teaching mythologies, you know, once a week is phenomenal. And I think there's gonna be more and more of this type of stuff where it's not just like you said, it, it's more than just watching a video, but this whole interactive piece that comes with it. And I, yeah, I think you know, we can wrap up after this, but I, I think uh, we can probably go on for hours. I, know. <laughs> I think the thing you just said is key, right? If you ever had any kind of health issue, right? 
like I had, I had to have a hernia operation. What is the first thing you do? One of the things I learned from studying healthcare is like, man, I want to find the best doctor I can, the best surgeon who's, I don't want, I don't want someone who's like, oh yeah, I've done a couple of those. <laughs> or I'm just out of school. I've got it fresh. I just stayed at a holiday inn. No, you want someone who's done thousands of them, right? Over and over and over again. Um, that's the person I want to find. I don't want to just like, oh, this person's near me or convenient. It's like, no, someone's going to cut into me, right? Yeah. So I want to go find the best person I can. Um, and I think we should be doing that with teachers too. Yeah. One of the most horrifying things that still happens every day in, in our education system today, especially public education, and I know it's, it's happened to me, it probably happened to you, where you've, we've all had great teachers that inspired us and affected the trajectory of our careers and our lives. And then, you know, I had, you know, I don't want to mention names, but you know, I had one or two teachers that, you know, I came in with this extraordinary enthusiasm for math, for example, and I was going to this higher level of calculus. And then I get this teacher who's like, clearly something's going on in her life. She's just not really excited about being there. You could just tell from right. day one. And I'm stuck with her for a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No choice. Like I can't like <laughs> opt out and change and you know, go on to, you know, give her two stars and move on to another thing. <laughs> like I'm assigned to her and I don't, at least that's how I felt back then. I don't have a choice. So I lost a year of someone just going, look today, this week you're going to do pages 44 through 80 and be quiet. Right. Yeah, right. If you have questions, raise your hand. We'll ask a question, but otherwise do your, do the workshop, you know, the work pages in these books and just killed it. And yeah. it just killed my enthusiasm and love and my flow state. For, I was in, I was out of flow state for a year. Yep. That should be unacceptable. Right. I, at least I ought to be able like, to go into, and I think my kids today, for example, if they get stuck in something like that, first of all, I would probably hear being there. <laughs> but then also they could augment it with all the things you're talking about out there. Who is the, the best uh, teacher of calculus and who's teaching in a fun and interesting way? Right. And let me go engage with, even if it is just video, let me go engage there and yeah. see if I can learn this better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, it's so spot on, especially when you think about rural areas or places that maybe don't even have the teacher to even maybe, you know, I guess provide even, even a bad experience if it was a bad experience, because they don't even have the people in that local area to be able to bring that kind of learning to light for kids, you know? And so it's, it's not just, I, I have same stories. I, I can think of a couple of teachers myself that thankfully I had a network around me of supporting family to kind of help me work through that and not let that be. Yeah. yeah. And I think about the kids that don't have that. And then I think about the places that are just don't have the capacity, the manpower, the, the, the structures in place to offer maybe even advanced math. And so all that stuff is, is, you know, we, we get back to the, that idea of human rights and equity and here are opportunities where everybody's going to, could have those opportunities to, to, to go forth and, and, and learn those things. And so um, this has been great. I'm going to actually cut us off because otherwise I'll probably just, I could pester you yeah. for another three hours, but, but Richard, for those that, that want to learn more about your work, learn more about what you're doing, what, where are some of those best places? We'll link that in the show notes and those that have listened to the show, all the books and things that you've referenced, we'll get all that linked in there to the show notes. But um, if they want to learn more about you, where's the best place to go? Uh, well, I, on Twitter, my handle is metaversial, M-E-T-A-V-E-R-S-I-A-L. I've had that forever. So, uh, you know, and I, I kind of embraced social media on the early on for, uh, for a variety of reasons, but, you know, Reed Hoffman was an investor in my last company He's the guy who started LinkedIn and helped yeah. engineer the first investment in Facebook. And we all had higher, I had higher hopes at least for what that was going to do for us. But 
it looks like again instead of creating a deeper collective intelligence it's more it's been more about monetizing human attention the way yeah. we did with broadcast media in the 90s and before yeah so i'm sorry i don't want to end on a downer no positive to say anyway follow me there uh and then you know tanjo.net t-a-n-j-o.net is the company website where you can track some of the things that we're doing and i've written a bunch of articles on like the uh i have a medium um a place on medium where i have articles but yeah i i look forward to hearing uh, from the audience, if anybody has any questions or yeah, uh, deeper interest peaked by the conversation, I'm, I'm I, I guarantee you'll have some questions that people reaching out because this has been a great conversation that I know is going to spur some thoughts and some conversation, um, and that that's that's always the goal of the show, and uh, you have been absolutely phenomenal with that. So I can't thank you enough for your time, and I appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, speak with me today. It was my pleasure, Aaron. I enjoyed it.